All right, everyone. Um, yeah, there'll be plenty of time as well to keep those conversations going a little bit later. Um, but just in a moment, yeah, we're going to spend some time looking uh, at the Bible to, together. And we're really blessed today to have Paul uh, come and speak to us. Paul's been a member here really since the beginning, like 10 years ago or so, and over the last couple of years has been studying and with his family, with Leah and the kids, been thinking about what, it's gonna, what it would look like to go and take the gospel uh, and be involved in, in growing the church in other parts of the world. So we're really lucky to have Paul um, speaking to us this morning. I'm just going to pray. Um, if you've got a Bible, actually open to Psalm 51. Um, Paul's going to be reading that in its entirety, so have that ready to go. But I'm just going to pray and then Paul will come up and speak. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you that we have this time to look at your word and to see in it who you are and how you are and how we are and to know ourselves and you truly. We just ask that uh, in this time you would help us quieten our minds and focus our attentions on you and what you have to say to us and be with Paul as he speaks. Amen. Um, I think I had it written down that I should introduce myself, but uh, I don't need to do that anymore. So that's great. You, um, yeah, my name is Paul. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, the last few years we've been at um, Bible College um, thinking about what to do with the future. Um, but at the start of my life, um, I grew up in a little town in the middle of the Northern Territory. If you were to measure it equally and choose the exact centre, that's, that's where I lived. Um, and that's because my parents uh, were missionaries, and they still are th to this day. Um, and that's, that's where I lived for the formative time of my life. And then as I moved to Sydney, I kept on hearing these stories of this little church, this indigenous church, um, and, the, and the stories that would come back. Uh, these are things that have always impressed me about them. There's one defining feature that really sticks with me is, is the love that they have for one another. Um, and it's a non-judgmental love. It's an unshakable love as they come together. So much so that it's not uncommon for them on a Wednesday night to get up in front of everyone and confess sin openly, knowing that the people listening will accept them and, and counsel them and forgive them. Um, they share about all sorts of things from domestic violence, whether they're the abused or the abuser. Um, they'd share about getting comatose drunk um, for thievery, um, breaking the law in generous, uh, general ways. And not just extreme examples, but also just the things of life, like lying and, and being unkind. But they, they did this because they felt convicted of sin, and when they brought it to their church, they received mercy and forgiveness. Um, and that they would love and be loved in the way that they did this. But that's, that's not normal, is it? Like, it's sad to say that that's not how we experience it. I mean, in this church in, in particular, or in other churches, you don't often get people coming up the front and just letting it all out. And, um, well, like Cobber was saying before, when you think of the word confession, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Um, whether it's you're forced to confess, or maybe you think of someone sitting in a box and there's a little slidey door, and then you tell the priest your sins. But that institutionalized form of confession is pretty far removed from 
what we see in the Bible. Um, and this church here, we're part of this Protestant kind of Reformed um, type of church where we got rid of the box and the priest. But the priests might say, do you still confess? I think maybe they, have a, they might have a point if they were to argue that. I think somewhere along the way, it, it's not, no longer normal for us to confess to one another. And I don't know about you, I don't like, I don't like confessing. It, it butts up against my pride. And I hate, I hate admitting that I've done the wrong thing. I don't know, maybe, maybe you feel the same. So I think you and I, I think it's safe to say, people in general have a problem with confessing sin. And like Cobber said last week, he began the series in the Psalms, that he said that prayer is the measure of the man. I would probably want to add another line underneath for this week, um, that confession is the measure of your faith. And the Psalm that we're looking at today, written by David, was written at a time where he'd hit absolute rock bottom in his life. Um, it's a low point for him personally, but also in his career as a king, being someone who was held to a really high standard. He's meant to be the one that leads his people in the ways of God. At this, at this low point, he pours his heart out to God in confession of sin. And there are lots of books in the, lots of songs in the book of Psalms that we don't have any context. It's just a song. But for this one in particular, it has a little blurb at the top. If you've got your Bible, you'd see that it points to a particular time in history. And it points to a place in the book of Samuel where we can get the context for this psalm. So I'm going to go there first before we look at the psalm. It's in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And one of God's messengers or prophets, he comes to David and he tells him a story. So Nathan comes along and says, David, I um, just want to tell you something. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. At this point, David's probably thinking, yeah, I've, I've done this, I used to be a shepherd. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. Now David being king held power and authority to preside over matters of law and judgment and this sort of injustice really pushes his buttons. In verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you, you are that man. You see, Nathan's story wasn't about someone else. It was an expose on David himself. David had thought he'd covered up something, something he'd done and straightened out the wrinkles. But here he finds that God is not going to be mocked and God in his kindness is not going to let David keep his sin covered. You see, earlier in the book, the author tells us that David had lusted after another man's wife. Using his influence, he brings her to the palace and sleeps with her. Later on, he finds out that she's pregnant. Then he organizes with his influence for her husband to get killed in the, a battle that's nearby. It's a tragic 
series of events, and it's a downward spiral for David. And using this story about a sheep, Nathan uncovers David's guilt. You are that man. Nathan goes on to say, in verse 7, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul, which is his predecessor, David's predecessor. I gave his house to you. I gave his wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. How does David respond to this? To be exposed as a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a murderer? In verse 13, David replies to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses. He's been forced to it, but he admits, he acknowledges the truth. And this is harder than it sounds because the particular laws for adultery, rape and murder at that time, they all brought death penalties. Not to mention that as a king, David had already seen Saul get his crown taken away from him for being disobedient to God. It makes sense why David wanted to cover up, wanted to avoid, ignore, deflect. But David admits, he confesses, he submits to Nathan's authority as God's messenger. And then in the second half of verse 13, we get Nathan's reply. Speaking on behalf of God, he says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. This is ridiculous. It's scandalous even that David would be forgiven for these things. But it needs to be said that from this point on in David's life and in the kingdom, things do not go well for him. He has been forgiven his sin, but God has not just taken away the consequences. And it's at this point that David writes Psalm 51. And he writes it so that all of his people can sing along with him about God's goodness. So I'm going to read Psalm 51 now. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, a God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I wonder, as, as I was reading that, whether you could get a sense of David's posture before God. Did you see a man broken by sin and devastated by the evil that he committed? And as we go through the psalm, there's lots of things I really want to talk about, but I only have time to draw out, you know, like sifting for gold. There's three nuggets that I've got. Um, so one, David's radical view of sin. Two, David's radical view of God. And three, David's radical view of sacrifice. I'm just focusing on those today. So let's look at the first one, David's radical view of sin. I don't think I could go past verse 4 without addressing it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what, done evil in your sight. You, you hear that and think, well, are you serious, David? Can you hear yourself? Do we need to get Nathan back in so he's going to help rewrite this psalm? It seems like he missed something. And we need to ask the question, is David saying that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but only against God? Is that what he's saying? I, I don't think so. I think the opposite is true. I think that David's view of sin is more radical and profound than that. Firstly, it's helpful to remember that it's a song. It, it's David's words are meant to be sung by a gathering of God's people, like we've done this morning, and he's written personal words to God in a way that's universally applicable. That's why if we are all to say at the same time, against you only have I sinned, God, that's true for each of us individually, but also corporately. Secondly, there are sins that are against God alone, like idolatry and blasphemy, but David's not talking about those things. I think rather he's drawing on his understanding of Scripture. In particular, there's a verse in Leviticus 6 where it says, when you sin against another person, it is actually a breach of faith against the Lord. When you sin against another person, that is a breach of faith against the Lord. So each of us has sinned against others, and you can represent that visually if I do this with my arms, horizontal axis. And when we sin against others, it is simultaneously a vertical axis. So you end up with both at the same time. David's theology around sin means he's devastated by a sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he's even more devastated of the fact that he's provoked a holy God on, on the vertical. And in the end, he doesn't have to answer to them. He will have to answer to the judge of all men. He will have to answer for his sin with God. It's like if I was a handy guy, and this is just an illustration. If you know me at all, it's not nowhere near accurate. And I wanted to put a fence in the ground. You know, that's something that people do. My dad could do it. Um, so I get this thing and it drills holes in the ground. And apparently you have to do that to put posts in the ground. So you drill, 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 bang. And I, and I hit like a big pipe and it starts filling up with like electricity and, and Wi-Fi. And those things are just coming out everywhere. And dial before you dig is not, not the moral of the story. But I've, the neighbor's house goes dark. All these lights turn off and then the whole street goes dark. So I've, I've sinned against my neighbor, obviously, but guess who I'm going to have to answer to? The high power of the town council. 
I, I have sinned against my neighbour, but I'm going to have to answer to a greater authority because they've made rules for a reason, to stop handy guys like me from doing these things. The, the sin against others is a personal affront to God. David knows his sin against others is against God, but look at the next verse in verse 5. He says, I was brought forth in sin, and in sin was I conceived. And what, he, what he's saying here is that my sin problem is not a recent development, but it's been a problem ever since I was conceived, that he's been prone to sin. And all the mothers could say amen to that, ever since they were, they were born. This is David's understanding of the human state. And we, we call it original sin, and, and total depravity is another word that comes in, which describes the reality that we find in the Bible, um, that because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we all have a sin problem, and even our best intentions are infected by this virus of sin. Another way to think about it, as one of my lecturers said, is it's like all of humanity was born on a pirate ship, and you could be really, a really good pirate, like really moral and ethical pirate. You could be a really charitable pirate. You could set up your own GoFundMe and help kids in Africa. But at the very base level, we are still enemies of the crown. This is why David has such a radical view of God, which is our second point. With this view of sin, what hope do any of us have except for grace? David had experienced grace. The word grace means undeserved favor. So as a saved sinner, as a restored wretch, in verse 13 he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. Part of David's, David's reasons for writing the song was to shout the ways of God from the mountaintops so that other sinners like him would turn to God. David writes the song so that his people and us can know what God is like. And so in verses 1 and 2 he calls upon God's characteristics. And these are things that God said about himself in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, God shows Moses what he's like, and he calls out, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David had been guilty, but as Nathan had told him, his sin was taken away. He, David was stained by blood guilt, but God had washed him. David had tried to cover up his sin, but what he needed was for them to be exposed and hosed away, because otherwise the guilt would have remained. So Psalm 51 is meant to be sung by sinners, and with David we can call together for this intervention that God can do in our lives, because we can't fix these things ourselves. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Verse 2, wash me, cleanse me. It goes on throughout the whole psalm. But look at verse 10, create in me a clean heart. This goes beyond washing, which deals with things in the past, the stained past actions, and it moves more, it's more like a heart transplant, which ensures a better future. David asks God, the creator, to create in him and in us as we sing it together. A heart that doesn't fall into the same traps over and over again, one that is wholly committed to God. And it, this brings us to a third point, David's radical view of sacrifice. So David knows he has a sin problem. He knows that God is merciful and is the only one to create lasting change in his life. 
So in verse 16 he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The way that David's people, Israelites, had been told by God to deal with their sins was to offer sacrifices. But here David is saying God will not delight in them. So here's another conundrum. What is David saying? Is he saying the sacrificial system is redundant? Is he saying that to deal with sin, there's no need for the customs, even though God said they had to use them? Or just a broken heart will do. If so, why does he say in verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifice, in burnt offerings? Which one's true? God, does God delight in sacrifices or a broken and contrite heart? Which, which one's it going to be? Well, again, David doesn't see a problem here. Nathan's not coming back to rewrite the psalm. To reconcile these two points, it might help to remember that David can't personally offer any sacrifices for these sins. He deserves death, and yet he received mercy. And so he's giving, he's giving words for his people to sing to remind them to cast themselves onto God's mercy. If God was able to forgive David, who had no avenue for forgiveness, how much more should his people cast themselves onto God's mercy when they do take their sacrifices to him? And he wants them to know as well that it is a dangerous thing to take sin lightly. So that if you offer a sacrifice without any thought, just on autopilot, that, that's not pleasing to God. And as they sing this song, as they come to the, the tabernacle, the place where they give their sacrifices, he wants them to sing together that, and to remind each other that God delights in sacrifice when it is given with a broken and contrite heart. It's, it's kind of amazing that David actually wrote a song about his sin at this tragic time of his life so that everyone can remind him and remind one another about how he's stuffed up. What would motivate David to be able to be that vulnerable with his people? And what motivates the indigenous church that I was talking about in the territory to confess their sins openly? What will motivate you and me to do this? Well, I think the answer is, just as we talked about sin has a horizontal and vertical element to it, so also does God's grace. When God redeems us from our sin, which affects others and himself, that forgiveness and mercy that streams down from God is something we can send outwards towards others too. And Colby, can you come up? Just, a, just a, a visual example. When one recipient of mercy receives... Yeah, you're, you're a recipient of God's mercy, right? When, so you, you've got to give me a, a, a vertical and a horizontal axis towards... So one, one this way and that one that way. Yeah, so when one recipient of mercy receives God's mercy, he can send it to others... So if I sin against Cobra, how is he going to receive it? With, with mercy, because he's received mercy from God. Does that make sense? That's, that's <laughs> overwhelming. So you can sit down. But you're not going to forget that. Some... The point is, those who have been saved from the power of sin are free to confess their sins to others. David knew that somehow. God was able to forgive his sin even when the required sacrifices weren't sufficient. But as followers of Jesus, we do know how this works. 
David didn't really know how it could fit together, but we do. And we know who it is that we have to turn to for mercy. In Jesus, God provided the perfect sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. This is why the Apostle John said to his friends, if we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in the letter of 1 John. And this is why Jesus said these words. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is who we're able to turn to for rest and restoration. So what, what part does confession play as we go to, to Jesus? Well, in, in David Watson's book that Leah told me about very helpfully a few days ago, he, wrote, he writes about the, the, the topic of repentance and the importance of actually identifying sin as we go to Jesus. So there should be a quote here. A worldly man says, Lord, I've sinned. But he does not know what the sin is. At least he doesn't remember. Whereas a true convert acknowledges his particular sins, as it is with a wounded man who comes to the surgeon and shows him all his wounds. Here I was cut in the head. There I was shot in the arm. And so a mournful sinner confesses the several diseases of his soul. So the question would be, do you know your wounds? Do you feel burdened? Does your soul need rest? Jesus is called the great physician. He can heal physically, but he's also in the business of healing souls. And here's what Jesus said about being a physician. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So who needs to come to Jesus for healing? Sinners. Or a better way to say it is people who sin. That's everyone in this room. What's the appropriate posture to come to Jesus? With a broken and contrite heart, as it has always been. This is what David teaches us about confession, how, how to do it. But Jesus motivates us to actually practice confession. Now, if you're t here today and you've been a follower of Jesus for a, one day or a thousand, your salvation is certain, but we still sin, don't we? So will you confess your need to be washed again today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day until Jesus comes again? We will need to keep returning to Jesus, who is our salvation, in prayer and in humility. Maybe this week you could use the Psalms to be like fuel for your prayer, to fuel a conversation of, of confession to the one who can actually deal with it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you feel like God might be saying something to you through what you've read in the Psalms, we'd love to talk and pray with you. Um, so Anna and, and Kaba and Claire and I will hang out down here after the service is finished. If you'd like to talk or pray, whether you're a believer or not, if you have things that you want to talk and pray about, we'd love to, to pray with you. And, and there will be a time to do that after all the formal part is done. But I'm going to pray now to finish, and so please join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, that he willingly went to the cross to be the sacrifice, to end all sacrifices. 
Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you for grace. Even if we don't deserve it, Lord, we know that you are the one who is gracious. You are the one who shows mercy when we don't deserve it. And that we can cling to Jesus, the one who cleans us. And Lord, may this be something that we practice with one another, that we would show mercy and kindness to others who sin against us. Please, would you make us a people who are willing and open to confess, because you are so good. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.